0: Welcome everybody to a very exciting episode 35 of the Ascent of Board Games. What makes this episode so exciting, other than that I'm here with Mike and Jason and Joe and Frank, is that I'm here with Mike and Jason and Joe and Frank. We're in the same room, we're recording live again for the first time in over a year, and so when Frank says something really crazy, I can just reach over and smack him.
1: Y'all can't see it right now, but I'm touching
0: Brian. Stop it. Gross. You may also hear Sam in the background. My she, pup did not approve of she, me touching Brian. He does not like, Frank to, uh, like Mike touching me. And I still apparently can't tell who any of you people are. It's been a long time since I've seen you. Anyway, welcome everybody. We're here to talk about worker placement games, which is a big ask. There's about a million of them, but we've narrowed it down to a list of ones that we think are the most interesting or innovative or that we like and want to talk about. Or
2: don't make us want to set them on fire.
0: I mean, sure. If you've listened to this show, you probably are aware that we're probably more themed gamers than Euro gamers. I think that's a safe way to say it. There are still some very good games in this that we enjoy, but it's not really our especial bailiwick, so there'll be a lot of gentle
2: mockery in this I personally blame worker placement as one of the big things that has broken modern Euro gaming.
0: Uh-oh! Got a hot take. A minute out of the game. There
2: will be
1: opinion.
0: I mean,
2: so basically, what you've got is a system where, if you define our worker placement mechanic, it's put a bunch of guys on the board on these themed action spaces, and then these themed action spaces do a lot of things that will get you points, and then you have a point salad that sum up all the various spaces that all the workers have been putting forward to in their own little mini games, and poof, you have a game. It's a really boring game and there are a million
1: of them. On that same note, I think just in a broad sense, one of my biggest complaints with worker placement games is learning them. Because functionally, they all have similar positions like there's always the one that gets you more workers there's always the one that just scores you points there's always the ones that generate resources go
3: first on
4: the Mike, stop explaining agricola it's my job there's (laughs) always the
1: one that lets you go first but like every time you sit down to learn a new worker placement it's like okay guys i'm gonna go through a whole list of actions you're gonna black out about halfway through and then we're gonna play this game at which point we're gonna immediately need to go back through that list of actions
3: have you ever seen a feast road Odin, mike It has eighty action spots, I think, something (laughs) like
4: that. It's it's like just just don't. Each of them are boutique (laughs) action spots. Exactly.
0: So what Frank and Mike and Jason are saying is that worker placement games are bad, and you should feel bad for liking them. I disagree. I did not say that at (laughs) all. Just for the record. Just for the record, Mike. I'm going to edit this podcast so that you (laughs) absolutely said that. (laughs) My name
1: is Michael, and I hate worker placements and people that like them.
4: There you go, Brian. Ooh. That should make your game real <laughs> easy. That's perfect. Okay. <laughs> so you feel about worker placement games the same way you feel about those pop uh, what are they called? Funko, uh, Pop? Funko, Funko Pops? Pops?
1: I can't even fathom the person that likes Funko Pops. So We need a Funko Pop worker placement game.
0: Is what ah. we <laughs> uh, sh- honestly, Shocked It doesn't already exist. But, you know. I mean, there's already a Funko Pop skirmish game.
1: So. The best part about it is you get a number of actions equal to the number of Funko Pops you own. Ooh, The ultimate
0: pay to win.
2: What kind of actions do you get from having the Golden Girls? You know.
0: S- <laughs> Sass. So, Frank, where did this terrible blight on board gaming start? In the dawn of time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Frank, that's just 1991.
2: (laughs) Okay, and really, some of these games aren't quite classic worker placement, but they kind of have the things going. But in 1991, Dory Smith and Philip John Smith had their own little company called Two Wolf Games, and they published an amazing game called Silverton. This is one of those early games that You should probably know about because it was really innovative, especially at the time. It is a railroad game uh, in a lot of ways. Silverton, Colorado, you know. But there's a lot of nice theme going. Basically, what you're doing is you're building tracks to mines and doing some passenger train runs. And so you build tracks, open mines, and get money sent back to various cities. There's also a marketplace so that the amount of stuff that's sold will vary slowly drifting up over time going down as people actually sell the various commodities, minerals, I and mean, we're talking about metals because this is all Colorado mountains. So the worker placement aspect is a little weird. You get two prospectors and two surveyors in most games, can be one or two, depending on the setup. Prospectors can open mines. And in fact, either you lay out a bunch of which mines are available for opening each turn and everyone puts prospectors on the ones they want, prospectors have a zero plus one or plus two. And if two people go for the same place, you roll off with your prospector bonus. When you get those, of course, you'll, you can open a mine. If you have tracked your mine specifically, you can then mine that for that much and sell it into the market. That's pretty much, all except that mines will decay and they'll run out eventually, especially gold mines, which are very, very volatile. You also have two surveyors. Surveyors are used to build track. You put them on where you want to build your track or to remove track and reclaim the money for the track, which is important because the mine you ran it to probably doesn't have a thing anymore. So you're kind of drawn between having to place your surveyors on new places you want to build in comparison to where other people want to build for their tracks and picking up new tracks just to keep enough money to open new mines elsewhere.
0: So you have the the precursor of the worker placement and you also have the precursor of the ticket to ride blocking people's routes.
2: Totally. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, you can see some of the mm-hmm. ticket-to-ride stuff. And there's some rules that seem very ticket-to-ride. You can't build two parallel tracks that connect two places. And this one, of course, you roll off if you're both placing surveyors on the same
1: spot to mm-hmm. see I who gets say, to place Was it. there any sort of like worker blocking?
2: No, there's no blocking here. So basically anything is settled by, everyone gets to place there and roll off. Mm. You do place them in order, so you know if oh, you're going to have to roll off or you're going to place it. So it's kind of missing that blocking that's key to worker placement. Yeah but you even get themed workers. So surveyors can only do one thing. Prospectors can only do the other thing.
0: Yeah. And it also sounds like it had a lot of the Sort of stock market kind of stuff going stock on. Stock market, as well. the
2: mining where you're having to both own places and get the rails to. And like, does, does it have to brass. be
0: your own rails, or are rails kind of communal? It's been
2: a while. I think it has to be your own rails. Wow. Okay. Yeah, there's no communal in this one. But yeah, it's actually still a playable game. It's a little long, and the stock market is a pain to adjust.
0: We've come a long way.
2: But yeah, Mayfair actually did about a decade ago a reprint with nicer bits. Very but cool. again, that's the first case of. Almost worker placement. You can kind of see the uh, the genes there. Second one I've got is 1998, which would be Keetum and Aladdin's Dragons. Both are Richard Breeze RD games, and I think Amigo did the German Aladdin's Dragons. And this one, you have a bunch of theme spaces with a medieval kind of castle thing. You've got individual spaces on each of these areas where you can place. Your little numbered tokens, which are kind of your workers, they all go face down into these circles and you are limited for each space how many you can have, how many tokens, workers, whatever, you can have in each place. Each place, the person who places the highest token will get the action, and it's all face down until you turn up at the end of the turn. see
0: who wins. If you have like two workers in a space and somebody else has one, is it the combined value or is it the highest? In Aladdin's
2: number? dragons, it's the combined value. Mm-hmm. In Keetum, it's just the highest value. Oh, okay. So it's really easy to get screwed out of actions in Keetum mm-hmm. that
1: you really want.
4: Mm-hmm. So it's but, like bidding for spaces almost.
2: It's almost like bidding, yeah. And it's a face down bid, so it's an annoying game.
4: <laughs> I
1: see. So <laughs> yeah. you, you said you've got how many
2: tokens on that one? Uh I think we've got about eight or nine tokens.
1: It and how many eight. how many spaces?
2: There's about eight or nine spaces.
1: Sure. So, like at best, you're maybe getting half of those because, like, oh, as you no. place you're out getting, your, you're stronger getting two or three ones, of those tops. Okay. Generally, because like as you place out your stronger tokens, you're going to be left with weaker ones, which, which aren't going to get ideally you. Ideally, toss on a location that nobody else has gone to,
2: or you put out the weaker ones early to be a bluff for what you're really going to. And but then, and, you know, someone might take up the spaces, and it is still to me, a really annoying game to play. Sandy thinks even less of it. I think her comment was when asked at one of our cons from a person that she actually likes, if she'd like to play Aladdin's Dragon, she just looked at them calmly and went, oh, no, thank you, but I'd rather bleed from the eyes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's fascinating because mechanically- that sounds like it should have some interesting stuff there. Yeah, yeah, you're you're bidding for a place. So do I bluff on this place to make them think that's what I want, and then I actually go and put my piece over here? But yeah, I could very easily see that like not working in practice.
2: Uh, Aladdin's Dragons is a Spiel des R- nominee. I mean, that's it's. I mean, it a, got yeah, its popularity. People were playing it a lot, loving it. I actually did like it the first time I played it, and I loved Ketum, but it. it gets a little arbitrary and i finally that whole blind bidding blind bluffing is huh
0: you know, it's, that's one of the first games I played when I moved to Atlanta and met Frank and started getting into board games at the War Room. I remember playing Aladdin's Dragons and it was, I mean, it was unlike anything I had played before. Yeah. And at the time, mm-hmm. it was really interesting and cool. We've got a lot better options now.
2: Yeah. But when was, you get to that track of theme spaces, mm-hmm. oh my God, that was just, I think,
4: earthquake. Cave or the Market or the or the Flying Carpet Shop or whatever it was. And it was just, yeah, yeah there's a lot of- I'm going to the camel space. You can't stop me. <laughs>
1: Can we, can we talk about the fact that in this reality, there's just a dude that sells magic carpets that fly? Like, what are we even doing with our lives in these mines, y'all? Also, about the
2: same time, we got bus from Splatter Spellin. Splatter, if you don't know, is a Dutch company started by a group of students that were hand-making their games in, you know, some college lab or something.
0: Yeah, didn't they, like, just say, hey, we're going to form a company so we can sell some of our games at Essen? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and, totally. and it worked out pretty well for and them. And they would
2: take, uh, you know, 100 or 200 copies that they'd handmade to Essen, sell them all out, and that's it. That's all you got. And their first three games were very small, tiny, and hideous. Um <laughs> The copy I have, the original, has absolutely ugly art, terrible board game puns on all the map <laughs> that you would have to be an SN insider practically to understand all of them. <laughs> and it's been republished a couple of times, including by a different company. But what Bus has, it's a another rail game. Basically, you're building your bus routes. You've got one bus. You can buy more buses. And then it's got workers that, and it's three types of buildings. Your buildings are basically offices, pubs, and homes. And there's a clock that basically ticks over. So, you know, in the early morning, everyone wants to go from their home to the office, late afternoon, office to pub, pub to home. And so everyone will try to do that. And you basically take a room action, literally called a vroom action, to move workers to a place, not necessarily their own home, just a home. They they aren't
0: it doesn't that, really matter they, they aren't they that live. picky. <laughs> there's a little when you, bit of... when you get drunk, you go home with whoever wants <laughs> some company.
4: This is the original bus artwork.
2: Yep. Wow. Just picking that up It is not the worst splotter.
4: I mean, art. we've we've had worse board <laughs> game covers on this show. <laughs> if you look
2: at times. Can by splotter, that that I think is the worst.
1: But anyway,
0: like I could <laughs> see that hanging on
1: somebody's fridge. Let's just put it. That way. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay.
2: So where the actual you know, point of this is that you do have a kind of worker placement. You get action cubes, seven of them, and you place them on the various, do I want to build a building and construct a building or get a new bus? There's only one of those spaces available. And you go rounds placing your cubes on the limited number of spaces for that type of action there's seven different type of actions on there then you go through and walk through the actions in order from whoever placed uh last goes first which is interesting so that placing first guarantees you the action but last gets it first (laughs) okay but it that kind of you can see it's a type of actions there's not that classic here's your workers here's your spaces Mm -hmm. it's type of actions
1: so it's almost kind of you can kind of see it well, it's interesting too, right? Because from that description, we see a very similar mechanic come up you know, much later in games like Dominant Species where it's, hey, we're going to go around all placing out our workers and then we're going to execute this chart of workers from the top bottom, which I think much like in Dominant Species is just dry as hell. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know if this game has the same issue where it's like the actual analysis paralysis occurs Once everybody has placed their cubes and it's like, okay, cool, here are the actions I've ended up with. How do I make the best use of these?
2: Oh yeah, it does have a pretty bad analysis paralysis because it's very predictable from that point. Mm -hmm. I think the model where you place your dude and do your action immediately, is so much nicer. And I think that part's been weeded
0: out. Mostly, (laughs) yeah.
2: The last, and I think first really proper, this is definitely a worker placement game, would be Pillars of the Earth. It's 2006, designed by Michael Rennick and Stefan Stadler. This is Cosmos. Yay! Mm-hmm. I like Cosmos. is great. And this one, A, is gorgeously themed to the book and TV series and everything. It's basically about a medieval village that decides to build a cathedral over decades. Under, yeah, over yeah. 100 years, I think. And... This has a lot of cards and little people that represent your master builders and a whole bunch of theme spaces. Every turn, you're paying for cards that represent what your builders can do and adding new builders. These are ways of turning resources into victory points mostly. Mm -hmm. And then you've got some resource cards you can buy to get resources. Then you place your master builders to harvest more resources. Get away from the event that's going to happen. That decade probably is a turn is probably a decade. And then uh, whether you can commit enough resources to add a part of the cathedral or what. And then a whole bunch of collecting resources, turning them into other things, et cetera. The classic. The only weird thing about this one is gold's important. So what happens is all the builders are thrown into a bag together. And you start pulling them out of the bag. And basically the first builder that comes out of the bag, if you want to place him right now, get any space you want. That's $8. Otherwise, you don't get to place him. Then seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and then the rest are free. <laughs> and then you put the ones who weren't paid for back in
1: the bag. And
2: So you basically, the order of how you get to place is all determined by when it's
1: pulled out of the bag.
2: I haven't actually seen that anywhere
1: else. Yeah. I mean, it's a interesting way to get around the- Turn order and all that planning and stuff right it it (laughs) takes away the some of the strength of being first player
4: yeah but it adds a whole other level of analysis paralysis
2: (laughs) not really because you don't know what the order is it's all in a bag it's pull it out okay want to place it right now no oh
0: well how much it (laughs) yeah
1: yeah it's interesting right because that becomes more of a game of cost benefit analysis it's the oh god i really need that
2: space and that one's gonna go and And so it does kind of self-balance the how much a space is worth, Mm -hmm. but it's actually a good game. I love it.
0: Yeah. I feel like this is another one that was really big when it came out. It's one of the first tie-in games I was aware of. I mean, obviously you had like Star Wars games and that kind of thing, but it's like, this is a game based on a novel? Who does that? (laughs) Germans. (laughs) Cosmos Cosmos
1: did a whole series of them apparently, but- uh, But yeah. Is it is it bad that I've never actually read The Pillars
0: of the Earth? Novels? I certainly haven't. I haven't either.
4: I have. It's good. I, mean, it's I
2: actually watched a couple of episodes <gasps> of the TV series.
0: Like, and uh, it's good. So Joe, we need to get you to play the game so you can tell us if it's true to the book.
4: Sure. I mean, like I like I remember that book at all. I mean, I definitely read it, but this game has go. been
1: in the, the Dragon Con board game library for functionally ever. And it's just it it looks like ye old generic worker placement it game. is
0: about as euro as you can get i think mm-hmm. I,
1: and having never read the book i'm like i have no interest in playing this game
4: mike how dare you as euro as you can get i bring to you agricola
1: Ooh. but joe i don't want to be a subsistence farmer
4: i don't care <laughs> joe how do i feed all of my children mm. and make a profit please so agricola was released in 2007 designed by ua rosenberg And uh, published initially by Lookout and then uh, later by Z-Man Games. Players start the game with a farming couple living in a simple two-roomed hut. During the course of the game, these families have abundant possibilities to improve their quality of life by building up their home, improving their fields, and breeding their animals. In each game, 14 rounds. (laughs) 14 rounds
3: oh, it sounds like a threat a th- it is a threat <laughs> oh they just fly by <laughs>
1: sure by, each by, by players- round seven my children are both starving i can't grow anything
4: each of my players may take exactly one action uh. i love this rule book by the way it is pure well, poetry look, it was written in a period where <clears throat> you had to be very clear because <clears throat> nobody knew how games work. oh so good it's so good I would argue, in a weird way, the game does a great job of making you feel like you're totally powerless to stop anything from happening to your poor family. Because the the one thing I think that worker placement games do very well, and I think in a lot of ways Agricola does a good job of representing this, is feeling frustrated that you didn't get to do the thing you wanted to do. Okay. And Agricola, like UA Rosenberg, looked at that and said, what if... We make that theme be part of the experience of the game, right? Because you're a subsistence farmer, you're like, oh man, I want to go fishing to get some food for my family, but I also want to like build a new room so next round I can have another child. But I don't have all the actions
1: I need to do it. But also, Joe, if you have that other child, you then have to feed them, which means that if you didn't get food this round, then you're you're now going to be even more food debt.
0: Yeah. So basically, they were like, what if we take that sense of pathetic desperation? And just turn it up to 11 for the entire duration
4: uh-huh, of the game. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> and thus, our local gaming group has dubbed Agricola the plight of the subsistence farmer.
4: It is hyper euro. Besides selecting spaces, there's no player interaction. Uh, that's not true. Some of the more advanced cards allow a little bit of player interaction. But- for some of the tags, yeah. Right, but to be fair, techs. staling actions is pretty, <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. interactive. Yeah.
1: But again, Joe, I ask you, that sounds awful. What if we put it in a cave?
4: I'm sure we can we can play Caverna if you want to play Caverna instead. I mean, like, that's fine.
0: So I got Caverna because that you loved Agricola so much. Well,
1: I was young and dumb, okay? <laughs> uh, but, like, I was sold on, hey, it takes some of the issues with Agricola, and it fixes them. Doesn't fix the issue with <laughs>
0: Agricola. Well, I mean, What's the issue with Agricola? That it's a worker placement game.
1: Well, <laughs> I mean, again, that it does a really good job of making you frustrated that you can't do all the things you need to do. Okay. I think I like Caverna better than Agricola. I will probably play that over Agricola at this point, only because it's got a medieval, Your are dwarves, you've got a cave, you can excavate the cave or farm outside your cave.
4: I would argue that that is a feature, not a bug for this specific kind of game. The game is clearly leaning into it. I mean, at the top of the rule book, it literally has like a banner that says, the 17th century, not an easy time for farming. <laughs> like, they're clearly leaning into oh, it. Yeah, and like, yeah. you know, you Rosenberg, really brilliant guy, right? Like,
0: yeah. To be absolutely clear, Agricola is a great Euro game. Oh, yeah. Still in like the top 30 on the board Mm -hmm. Game Geek. It's a great example of the genre. And if you want to just get one, I mean, it's probably a good one to get. Uh, Out
4: of replayability. Yeah. I mean, the different decks
0: you can get to combine different possibilities. also
2: new player friendly. I think the original Agricola had uh, an even more basic starter mode. There was a really simple, incredibly light family game. But even the base game, you start with, you know, two actions and extremely limited five or six possibilities. Then a few more cards are added each round to increase your palette. And so it's easy to teach because, you know, these are the things you can do. That list of 81 things Mike was talking about <laughs> right. is very
1: tiny. And like, I constantly talk about how much I love themes in games like this. <laughs> you, you play this and you, you do feel the theme. It comes through really well. It kind of gets to that point in gaming, though. It's like, why
0: is this such a popular theme in gaming? Dourness. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's just that it's an easy. I mean, I say easy game design is never easy. But it's it's something that you can simulate pretty easily and everyone kind of understands what it is. All right, you have a family that needs to eat and, you know, then they will have children and raise animals and that kind of thing. This is the first game that had those kind of variable spaces with a deck or something, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because it's basically you have a half dozen or so spaces on the board and then additional things just sort of become available randomly out of the deck and the game's different every time as a result of that. It was really innovative. It was hugely successful. It's a great game. It's just not our cuppa, especially. Mm-hmm. I still like Agricola. I would probably play it again. It's not something I'm going to see on the table a lot. I, I
4: would play Caverna again, I okay. think. Okay. I yeah. have never played uh, Caverna. Would agree, but agreed, yeah. I'm not opposed to playing I mean, I think yeah. of, you know, of our list, obviously there's a number of games on here on this list that I like mostly because mm-hmm. we picked only games that we liked sure. for the most part. Because <laughs> that's how we were. Um, but it's a good game. Like I appreciate the theming, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly we're a little down on the genre in general, but I, I think it's an excellent game. Like I don't think you could go wrong if you want to get Agricola. Mm-hmm. I would say maybe get Caverna instead. So the nice thing about Agricola versus Caverna is that if you want to play this game with a group of people that never played board games before, the topic is hyper approachable because it's just like hey just be humans a, a couple hundred years ago <laughs> right exactly. right like it's a very approachable topic If that's part of your goal, whereas like, hey, something like Caverna was like, well, you're dwarves and you're mining. It's like, I think it's a better game. I like it better. But this, in a lot of ways, is basic. Seems like a weird word to apply to this game because it it, it has a lot of interesting design choices, but it is very basic in terms of the genre. It's very much the grandfather. Yeah, very straightforward. Yeah, it's very much a grandfather of a lot of the rest of these games as we kind of come down the list.
2: Yeah. And there are two other games in this series, (laughs) Lahav and uh, Feast of Odin. Lahab is actually seriously hardcore, thinky, and good for two, but it's tricky. You have to think several turns ahead or you'll screw yourself.
3: Yeah, isn't this one of the ones where you take a thing and then you have to convert it to another thing and then convert it to another
2: thing before yeah, you can actually do anything yeah, useful with yeah. it? <laughs> and it's a little painful for that. Feast of Odin is like all of those thrown into a blender with several other games added on. Uh, and- yeah, Feast of Odin's a weird
3: one because like... It takes the thing that kind of helps define what worker placement is, which is blocking people out of spaces they want. and says, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. We have 81 spaces and there's slight variations on it. So if you can't get the one you want, there's one that's adjacent to it. They can do basically the same thing. Yeah. It's really weird. (laughs) I don't know why they made that decision.
1: Because nobody likes being blocked out of a space. So here's a similar space that does almost what you want, like 80%. Not quite optimal.
0: Not good enough.
4: I don't know. Feast for Odin seems like wacky, crazy nonsense to me, to be honest. Um, I think something that is a little bit more straightforward like Caverna or Agricola would certainly, if I had to pick an item from this specific list of four games, it'd certainly be the one I would pick.
3: Maybe in 2007, people were tired of starving to death and they decided it would be a better idea to go conquer other uh, native peoples. That's (laughs) always fun. (laughs) (laughs) That's where Empire's Age of Discovery kind of comes in. 2007, created by uh, Glenn Drover and released by Tropical Games, you basically take on one of the many, many colonial powers that were uh, basically doing a land grab in the new world, throwing all your colonists over there, throwing your missionaries, throwing your soldiers, throwing your merchants, trying to exploit the hell out of the <laughs> this new territory that they discovered.
4: So it's probably worth pointing out that the original aim for this game was Age of Empires 3, Age of Discovery, because originally it was a video game tie-in yep. with the Age of Discovery series.
0: Yeah, Empires Age of Discovery was the Kickstarter a
4: couple years ago that re-released and polished it up and made it even prettier.
0: Yes, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful
3: beautiful sets they came up with
4: i'm fascinated because it's it's a video game tie-in which is so crazy yes yeah and and, and it's i mean it's like a good ass game like yeah (laughs) yeah
0: nobody expected (coughs) that no
3: yeah honestly i wouldn't have known that this was based off a a video game
0: because it plays like a fully developed board yeah I, i don't i mean i haven't played the age of empire series
1: i mean they're empire builders yeah via like the civilization not civ more like um they're almost played a lot more like the warcraft series or starcraft series where it's like yeah. you're building a base that just happens to be on a city scale oh. and then you produce Real-time units to go in right
3: yeah that's even not like more that at strange at all. <laughs> that's an even stranger oh, combination so of
1: weird <laughs> they definitely had a veneer of age of empires though
3: and, and like a lot of the games that we've been talking about, you have different action spaces, you'll be placing a worker of some sort. Now you have specialist workers that like the merchants or the soldiers that give you special benefits. But the idea is you're, you're trying to place them in there in the order that you place them matters tremendously. You know, in some cases, it's just the fact that you can't place at all because there's a limited number of spaces. But in other cases, being able to get your people onto a a new location that hasn't been exploited yet means you get the resources that are there. You get the first crack at conquering the people there, as opposed to people that come in later and they have to go place their people somewhere else. What I really like about this game, you know, other than the theme of conquering helpless people, is really that it feels very, very tight. Like, you have to have resources to purchase buildings which give you, you know, benefits. I don't think I've ever made more than, like, two buildings in a single game because the money is so incredibly tight. Mm -hmm. And every turn you're like, I don't have enough people to do what I want and I can't put them in the order I want, so how can I maximize my point distribution for this particular turn. And there's a set number of turns, there's like three ages, I think three rounds, three rounds and four rounds or something Something like that. that, So, it's very, very tight and it's very, very contentious. You're basically going up against other people's strategic goals and warring with them constantly. I mean, it's a land grab. You're trying to get as much stuff as quickly as possible before other people can take it.
0: One of the things I like about it is that you don't really have perfect information when you're going out to do a conquest. Because <laughs> basically, it's yes. like, all right, I'm going to go and conquer this part of South America here, and I'm going to send three conquistadors and two missionaries, or whatever the combination is, and then you draw a card from that ages deck and you see
4: just how uppity the natives are,
0: <laughs> and you may not have sent nearly enough,
4: <laughs>
3: yeah that's that's a bad moment <laughs> when you flip that card you're like, oh
4: no <laughs> I really like the uh, specialized workers in this mm-hmm. in this yeah uh, they they're implemented really well you have to There's an action economy cost for selecting one of them, but, like, you mostly get them through the rest of the game. Uh, Obviously, missionaries and colonists, like, go out and, like, stay on colonies. Mm -hmm. You don't get people off of colonies. But for everything else, right, you can kind of reuse them over and over again. It has a really nice feel to it as you're kind of building up your power base to get to do all these cool things.
2: It is weird because you have specialized workers but then you have different spaces to where you're going to send Mm -hmm. and workers can go to multiple spaces. So it's a weird take on that. That's especially sophisticated for (sighs) this early on.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and the way that you put your workers out is actually very similar to what we were talking about with bus where it's, there's a chart on the one side of the board and you execute them from top to bottom or whatever. But like, I think the introduction of like, Hey, the missionary is going to do this bonus thing when put into these positions, or the conquistadors will do this in these positions. Like that adds a whole lot of flavor. And then on top of that, if you miss out on being the first person to do like the conquest actions, you might be fine because the person who went before you could just fail. So it's like. Because you're not operating with perfect knowledge, it doesn't feel quite as bad to be undercut by the person who went before you. Which does still happen in this game. Like, don't even get me started on the buildings in this game, which have incredibly diverse range of powers and abilities.
3: Literally, one of them like, conquer the Incas or something, right? right. Like, it's here's, just-
0: here's 20 money. <laughs> Go have out, fun with that. Take out an
1: entire civilization. Done. <laughs> and it's like, Jason got that one. I got like, get a
0: mercenary,
1: (laughs) (laughs) which is good, but again, just a vastly different power level in between those two things. This game also has what I'm going to call the blood rage syndrome, where it's like the first round of buildings, you look at them and you're like, wow, those are good. The second round of building, you're like, wow, those are good. The third round, you're like, what, what, what? (laughs) why are these even in the game?
0: It's like the meme with Vince McMahon is like, (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes,
0: mm-hmm. <in> the- <laughs> Listeners you can't See that but I just Perfectly replicated The meme I'm talking yep. about he really like here. Yeah.
4: So obviously if you're Looking to get this game We would certainly Recommend the re-release Which is Empire's Age of Discovery It is a million Percent gorgeous Also pricey But a million Percent yeah, gorgeous Yeah it's
0: a big box With a ton of Little miniatures in it I'm surprised Jason Doesn't have a copy I do Oh okay so, well,
4: I take <laughs> Literally it bought it then. After Secret Board Game Kind of like Excellent. This game's amazing <laughs> Excellent yeah it's, so, a, it's a great game It's like it's Surprisingly great game for when it came out, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, they touched up the rules a little bit. Mostly they touched up the board to make it, like I was looking at the old board and look at the new board. The new board is 100% more readable and understandable mm-hmm. by humans. Mm-hmm. And like, that's all they did, right? It's like, they just touched it up. It, it didn't need a lot of didn't work. Didn't need a lot of work. Yeah, so.
0: this one really came out of left field when it was released and I'm like, oh my God, this is actually really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I
3: hear a game is getting based off a video game, I'm like, immediately of this lack of <laughs> interest. I'm like, okay, yeah, great. Good luck with that. But this one, like, I would never have known. Mm-hmm. In a million years.
1: I will say, though, that it does take up quite a bit of table real estate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. make sure you're playing on a nice, like, dining room table or something, because this isn't going to fit on your standard, like, Card folding table.
0: table. Yeah. Yeah. It is it's a big old board.
1: Pretty giant. So in 2007, uh, Kingsburg came out, and this was Strat Libri. Nailed it. Strat Libri Games, uh, and was designed by. Ah, now I know why y'all gave this game to me. (laughs) Curse
0: you, Joe! Hilarity Uh, ensues.
1: Andrea Charvesio and Luca Lenaco Nailed it. I apologize to
0: all parties involved.
1: And this game kind of tried to do a unique take on the worker placement by having your workers be dice so that the randomly determined value of the role determines what they can do. Now, I haven't actually played Kingsburg but okay. I have played the Kings- I've played photocopy a lot of version, which is Alien Frontier. Which the theme-swapped version. Basically <laughs> took Kingsburg and put it in space, but automatically makes it better.
2: So Kingsburg has a, a few things for it. I think it works great. Enough to get a second edition and a game called Kingsport Festival that's very, very similar. What it does is there are numbers like 1 through 23 or something on the board, and you roll your three dice. And you can place any number of dice on a space that matches that. The thing is, the player who rolls lowest for their sum of their dice gets to go first. So having those little piddly dice means you get to use like one die. On some of those little low spaces and get to claim them because only one person gets a space. While well, you know the big eighteen, you can just slot up there at the top and feel superior.
0: God, I remember Kingsport Festival. Yeah, that was
2: horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I think Kingsburg is Kingsburg is a better game because it's easier to see things.
0: Yeah, I was going to say you can read the board. Kingsport can, Festival is is, is like, a, yeah ugh, a, a mess. layout mess graphically. Yeah. yeah, that
1: one was all d sixes, right? That's all d sixes. Yeah. You, you would do the combined value of d sixes.
2: Yeah. Or a singular pair dice, yeah. Right.
1: Alien Frontier kind of had all of their actions be based on combinations of the dice. Yeah. So it was like one position, every dice that was put out, you would have to be greater or equal to the value of dice that are already there. Or you can only place your dice here if you roll doubles. Or, you know, this one is only for sixes. And then it gave you ways to manipulate your dice. Now, what really shocks me about both these games... Why has nobody just taken this to the extreme and had different dice values? Like, this worker is a D4. This one's a D6. This one's a, Ooh, this one's a D20. Crazy talk. Ooh. Like, because that kind of goes back to what we we're talking about with Empire's Age of Discovery, where it's like all of the you know, workers are unique. That just feels like it writes itself
0: right there, because the dice are literally unique.
4: Hmm. You could have a big old Paul, a D4.
0: Or you could be like me and, ah, I got a D20 worker now. Right. Three.
2: No, get with Good Goodman games and get with those D16s and D22s. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I'm i just, like, in literally thinking about this, it's like, why why is this not no, there, there is right, a game. Right,
4: game. all this. We're making a new game. We are making a new <laughs> game.
3: I can't remember the name of it. I own it. I'll have to... I'm- Trying to remember it offhand, but there is one where you have different you have different dice, and basically you're trying to claim cards, and you're trying to make suits of cards, right? So that I have three blue cards are worth more if I get a fourth one, that sort of thing. Mm. But you you're trying to get a certain numerical value. The card takes twenty five points worth of dice on it, right? And like the person who gets to keep it is the person who rolls the highest. So like your D four die is garbage, right? But like hey, if you use your D ten, you've only got one of those. But if you use your D ten and you roll a ten, no one else is getting that card from you. Yeah. So god, that's a but, like, again, is.
1: there is that built-in strategizing of, like, hey, when do I use my various yes. dice? And Wow,
0: Jason, that, that's a, a great game for us. It's a game with a bunch of different dice you have to roll high on.
4: <laughs> I've never won that game, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> weird! <laughs> now I have a weird question. Is King's Forge a worker placement game? Huh.
1: It is, I'd say, a roll selection.
4: But it's not a role selection, though, right? you're The first
1: half, you're, you're selecting rolls, and then the second half, you're placing your quote-unquote workers which are dice which instead of being workers would just be
4: materials Conceptually interesting let's move on
1: at least an alien frontier the engine to manipulate your dice is all to an end of a territory control game on the planet so mm-hmm. at some point you want to manipulate the dice that you've gathered in order to drop bases onto a planet. If you control sections of the planet, you get more options of dice manipulation, and so it kind of feeds back into the game's inevitable end. How is the in-game in Kingsburg?
2: Basically, you get points for a few things. You've got a tech tree, and so a big tech tree you advance along for six paths. I think it's like a six by four or something, so 24 different techs. You get points for periodically the orcs will, or the some monster will attack, and so you've got to build up defense to survive the attack or else lose stuff, especially buildings, which are the techs you built up. Mm. But otherwise, it's mostly on how many buildings you've constructed, mm. minus what the attacks have done to you.
1: game was called Unearthed. It was driving me crazy. Oh, uh, yes. okay. uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I really thought these games were great because of that kind of randomization that went into your workers' I know for some people that kind of fell flat just because it does still kind of boil down to a worker placement game.
4: I really dig Alien Frontier. I think it's a very clever game. I hadn't played Kingsburg at that point. So the idea of, oh, your turn is you roll a bunch of dice and then have to make the best use of those dice. I really dig and like having played both. Now I still prefer Alien Frontiers, frankly, because I prefer the theme of Alien mm, Frontiers. Uh-huh. I space themes just work for me better generally than medieval themes. I could see that. Just like a that's a personal thing for me. Sure. I like High Frontier, so that's <laughs> yeah. You <know>. oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Emmelman's so many Emmelmans. I
1: think the other thing because you actually said something there that's really important. These kinds of games. You need to be able to roll your dice at the end of your turn, so that you can spend everyone else's turn Planning. thinking about what you're going to do. Yeah, there's a little bit of time vortex there, but like I do now, have distinct memories of starting your turn, rolling your dice, and then just dead air, as... and, then,
0: and then everyone else is busy playing another game while they wait for you to make right, all your right. Right, Brian and I
3: are notorious for having bad luck with dice, and. What I do appreciate about this game, I'm not sure if Kingsburg has it, they probably do, but no matter what you're rolling, you've always got the track that's always advancing you towards building a colony. So you can just dump all the garbage dice into that and still feel like you're making progress towards your actual goal, which I definitely appreciate. Yeah, it's
0: good that there's something you can do even with a crappy roll. I I think the game
1: would not have worked
0: if you just
1: like, I can't do
0: anything with dice.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Kingsburg balances that by you get to go first. Oh, sure. And really, there's only two resources, stone and wood. And Mm -hmm. those build you, again, buildings tech buildings. I like Kingsburg a little better as a tech tree. I'm just. (laughs) No, that's fine. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I haven't played much of the the expansions for Alien Frontiers. Like there's like factions and all sorts of crazy nonsense. (laughs) So
1: Alien Frontier was actually a Kickstarter game and their first edition was a Kickstarter success story. Their second Kickstarter was not. They fell into the trap of having too many stretch goals and then having to fulfill those stretch goals. And it was just a cluster. It was real bad. Yeah. They have since also come out with a big box. But by that time, I was so fed up with... Um, I didn't even say who made it. Uh, oh,
0: you're the worst, Mike.
1: So this was Game Salute and Clever Mojo Games, which I don't even think Game Salute's... Uh, thing anymore is it
0: it
2: might have morphed into a different company under a different name right yeah. um,
1: absolute its own yeah, look up the, uh, story of pain and peril. yeah <laughs> yeah by the time the big box expansion came out i'm like i already bought all the stuff and y'all might have sent it to me but again i just i never played with it either because it just took so freaking long for them to fulfill on it that by the time it came out i'm like i don't even care anymore mm-hmm. But the base game, in retrospect, maybe it doesn't really need the expansion. Oh, I doubt
3: it. Like that's just more for no. extra flavor. Like yeah. I really appreciate the board presence of this game because, like, it could at its core just be here's some dice and you know here's some cardboard chits. But like they have little plastic colonies with little transparent domes mm-hmm. on the colonies that you place on the planet.
1: I will say the one other thing I I did appreciate was in the second Kickstarter they produced rocket shaped dice, oh. which are awful to roll. Yeah, I was gonna but, say like,
0: I I... But, I mean, ten out of ten for theme. Ten out of 10 <laughs> (laughs) for theme. I'm in. As you've probably gathered from so far, I'm not a big fan of a lot of worker placement games. There are a couple that I like. One that I kind of picked up on a whim and think does something really interesting is Village which came out in 2011 by Inca and Marcus Brand, who we'll be hearing from again a little bit later on, released by Egertspiel in Germany and Tasty Minstrel in the U.S. And on the surface, it's a pretty standard Euro worker placement game. You have your family and you're sending people out to gather resources or work at the blacksmith and make tools. There are people in the market who want things. And if you can get them, you know, three grain and two wood, you can go there and fulfill that contract and get money. What makes it interesting to me is that one of the resources you can spend in this game is the lives of your workers. Time is a resource that you can spend. There's a little time track on the board. And it's like, okay, well, in order to produce a wagon... You need to spend two time and two wood or whatever it is. And you, you know, move one of your workers along. And when your your time marker goes across the river, one of your family members dies. And depending on what they were doing when they died, there's like the village chronicle. And it's like, you know, if they were a, a craftsman, the first couple of craftsmen who die get put in the village chronicle. Is, These are our ancestors, our great craftsmen. And then after a certain point, they just kind of get dumped in a mass grave <coughs> off to the side of the board.
1: I remember oh. that one time when grandma went out and got some
0: wood. It was that <laughs> Good times. Good times, man. But yeah, I mean, other than they, it is kind of a crafty point salady sort of Euro game. But the idea that, yes, you go out and do stuff, you're getting more workers, but you're also using them up is not only interesting from a theme and a game mechanic standpoint, but I think it's also a, a commentary on the futility of the lives that we spend working for the betterment of someone else when we could be playing board games.
1: I mean, that reminds me a lot of uh, what's the game? I think it's also worker placement, but like one of the actions that you can take is like literally electrotherapy your workers so that they become dumber oh, or you, something oh, like that. Like,
0: <laughs> euphoria. <laughs> euphoria. Yeah, yeah.
4: yeah, absolutely. You're,
0: I don't know how you're I feel going about a little that? too
4: far with that one, huh?
0: <laughs> euphoria
2: is
4: a dystopia. So, yeah, it's very 1984. And like, I think it does a good job of representing that. It's not. Like, it's a fine game. Yeah, we're not going oh we're, am we're to talk about it because, it, frankly, it doesn't do anything unique besides literally that one thing. Gotta keep the masses
1: stupid, people. Yeah, because mm-hmm. if
4: they get too smart, they can't take certain actions. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: remember playing Village, and the thing that always got me with that one was the travel. Sending people to places took what felt like a really odd amount of time. Travel broadens the mind, Mike. I mean, sure, but
0: also also scores people, points. So. It also <laughs> scores points. I mean, everybody's going to die eventually. You may as well get as many points as you can. That's fair.
4: Well, let's continue on the theme of games that do something really unique, which make them stand out. And I want to talk about Last Will. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about games about dying. <laughs> ah, well, I mean, your uncle died at the start of the game. So Last Will, designed by Vladimir Suchi, published by CGE. And it's functionally Brewster's Millions, the board game. Your uncle has died, and you've been given a bunch of money, and you have a job, and it's awful. And if you spend all of your money first, you get all of his riches. Joe,
1: you don't necessarily have a job in the base
4: game. Uh, That's That's true. true. That's true. The expansion gave you jobs, but jobs are awful. It's hilarious. You want to get the lowest score, which is you want to have the most negative amount of money at the end of the game.
0: Basically, you want to have spent your money on the most useless shit possible
4: you can buy property mostly so that you can sell my dog and my girlfriend for breakfast on my yacht well that will cost you money score
0: (laughs) ah
1: joe the plight of the insanely rich person
4: (laughs) yes you have to buy property high and sell it low so you can lose that sweet sweet money you can you can buy a property improve it a bunch and then sell it low it's beautiful it's it's a fascinating game just the mechanics of kind of you know, all all it did is inverse the number, right? Instead of trying to gain money, you're trying to lose money. and it but it does a really great job of making you feel like you're on this crazy madcap adventure. Why is it so hard to spend all my money,
1: <laughs> Joe, I don't think throwing an incredible rager at your mansion is technically an improvement because the property degrades over time, right? Yeah. like, so there are certain actions you can take that will just degrade your property faster. like, throwing insane parties yeah but the best part is is it's like a what 1950s theme so it's like 30s or 40s okay years, 30s yeah. or 40s so it's like i'm fascinated by the ragers that they throw in the 1930s mm-hmm. that would just dis- oh, have you, you ever these read these the great de- gatsby right yeah. like
4: it's the great <laughs> gatsby it's great Well, just imagine you just like threw a party and then didn't clean anything up Yes, threw a party and then sold the house. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) On to the next one. It has a couple things going for it. Like The gameplay is a lot of fun. I like the action placement system. There's like four different decks of cards and you can have
0: friends and possessions and property and something else. the... The strength
1: of your turn and the firstness of your turn are determined by a track that you do before the worker placement section. So it's like before you do worker placement, you have to decide do I take more time, less workers, and more money or more cards. Mm. Or do I take less time, more workers, more cards? And there's a whole array of those that you can choose from. It this isn't the first game. I think that Fresco might have been the first that did. I that. I think maybe. But like um, I really enjoy that one where it's like you are balancing your firstness with your resources with your workers because if mm-hmm. you if there's a space that you need to put a worker on you're going to be paying for that with some opportunity cost mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas like if you don't care where your workers go if you just need like all the workers then you go last in the turn but you've got like more turns more workers to place than
4: anyone else So it makes the game feel very dynamic Mm -hmm. Um, and like the game does a very good job of making you feel like the idle rich at the start of the game, right? Like you're you're going to hire a coachman and like, hey, that means every time you take a carriage ride, it'll cost you more because you have to pay your coachman you'll buy some houses in the hopes that you'll sell them off for less later. It's just it feels like you're just a giant (laughs) raging jerk the entire game (laughs) as you're trying to flit away all of your money.
1: Joe, how can you say that? One of the single (gasps) best cards in the game is your best friend, who you can just give money
4: to. Yeah, he's (laughs) he's your best friend because he'll take some of your money from you, and it's great.
0: I'd I'd like to say that I I think of myself as all of your best friends, but anytime any of you want to give me money, I'm here for for you
1: there you go oh when my insanely rich uncle dies and then leaves me this crazy runner on his will if you give me your insanely
0: rich uncle's address i can work on something excellent Excellent. (laughs) let's talk after we're done recording (laughs) yeah let's let's not put that on record
4: I really really like this game and to be fair I like a lot of it because I think the theme works Mm -hmm. perfectly and I think the game is ends up being very dynamic because of the way the actions versus pawns versus the firstness of going kind of work together it all melts together in a really beautiful package
0: yeah I think this is one of those games that it's like when I haven't played it in a while I'm just like yeah that's a game it's fine and then when I wind up playing it I actually really enjoy it (laughs) another game i really enjoy and
4: also unique mechanism is
0: sulkin which is a 2012 cge game from simone luciani and danielle tashini and this is a game that was going to be right in my wheelhouse because i studied the maya a lot in college the other reason that really grabbed me for it was the table presence it has if you don't recognize the name this is the game with the gears Basically, there is a giant plastic geared wheel in the center of the board with, like, five other ones off of it, each of which presents one of the major cities of the Maya. And they're all kind of geared together, so when you turn the big one in the middle, which you do at the end of each turn, all the other gears turn a notch. Each turn, you are either placing a worker out, or you're getting all your workers back and doing the actions. So basically, you place a worker, and you have to place it at, like, the lowest available space on one of these wheels, which gives you, like, the least cool stuff when you remove it. But each turn, when the big wheel turns, it advances to a slightly better position. So if you take your time and wait long enough... All of those workers will be getting really significant rewards. The problem, of course, is that if you do that, you also don't have any more workers. So eventually, they're going to run out and have to take them all back. And where they are when you take them back into your hand determines what you get. I think the, you only take one back at a time, right? No, you take them. Oh, you take, them, them, all oh, you take all? them all back. Okay, you can put out as many as you can afford in one turn. Right. Term, although right. it's generally
4: in an ideal universe,
0: doing one at a time.
1: Also, a time. much like the subsistence farmer, you can't afford that much in this game. Exactly.
4: So that's specific push versus pull of like hey do i wait a little longer to cash in a little later always reminds me a lot of what's the dice game where you take dice in the future macau macau for whatever reason these two games have like a emotional resonance for me which is like you're making either decisions around hey do I want to take advantage right now of this thing or do I want to put it off a little bit so that later I have these crazy turns mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and I always feel like like obviously they're extremely different games but like they feel like they have like an emotional resonance that's very similar which is like Hey, do you do something now and get a lesser reward or do you something in the future and get a greater reward?
0: Yeah, yeah. And Macau is another one of my favorite games. I never realized that connection before, but I, li- I like what you're saying. But, you know, you've got sort of the point salady elements where you've got the different resources that you're collecting, wood and food and stone and gold and building buildings and building monuments and placating the gods and everything. But it's really the fact that you don't take actions when you place your workers, you take actions when you get them back, which may not be the action you originally had in mind for them. Technically
1: speaking, not a worker placement game. It's a worker pickup game.
4: You're fired. Uh (laughs) Really?
1: Well, good night,
0: folks.
4: (laughs) I actually do
2: like Tolkien quite a bit. Part of it is that turns so
4: fast. (laughs) 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 Zulkin. I
2: even like Tolkien except for the Cimmerillion, which... What? Oh, I love yeah. this
4: and It's so stupid. It's the <laughs> okay,
2: there. Anyway,
0: but We've yeah, we just I mean, lost about s- ten listeners.
1: <laughs> Turns are so worth bad. it. I will also argue with you, Brian, that the wheels don't always progress to a better ability. But a different ability. You
0: can, <laughs> yeah. And you can always sort of go back mm-hmm. by spending a little more. It's like, oh, we passed the thing I really wanted. Because that's the other thing. There are periodically times when players will have the opportunity to say, hey, instead of moving this gear once, let's move it twice this <laughs> turn. <laughs> and everyone's like, you bastard! <laughs> Yeah, it's got some neat stuff in there. You have to feed all your workers periodically because people need calories to function or something. Gross. And there, there's like a whole lot of areas where you need to get corn because corn is kind of your driving essential item. And there's a bunch of areas where you can get corn, but you have to cut down the wood first so you can clear ground. Because of course, you know, that's what you do is you raise trees so you can plant crops. And that never has any problems associated with it. But yeah, it's just, it's a fun game. It has a gorgeous table presence. I have a couple friends who have painted the gears <laughs> and worked at all the details in there. Gorgeous.
1: I would recommend that anybody who buys it new at least does like a dip on their wheels because mm-hmm. they come in just like a tan plastic. Yeah. But there are small indentations. Yeah. For the the details of them are actually really nicely done. I
2: mean, it's a Mayan calendar. i
1: think Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. But like without some form of contrast in there, like you kind of lose all of that. I think I literally
2: did a two spray kind of thing on yeah. mine.
1: Like, it feels a lot like old D&D dice, where, like, at the very least, take a crown to it. (laughs) God. Wow. That takes you back.
0: (laughs) And the other thing that I like about this one, I don't think it's the first game that did it, but it's the one I play, is that at the beginning of the game, you get a handful of these little tiles that basically will give you an assortment of things to start with, and you can choose some of them. So you can sort of plan out your starting strategy a little bit based on what you get there
1: yeah my problem with that so we played Zulkin recently and i functionally remembered how to play the game but i got those tiles and i'm just like i've got no idea which one of these i don't know what any of these
0: things do for me right now
1: not even optimal but like which ones are good and i'm sure they're all good in different ways but you have to pick two of them and i'm just like i i guess i'll take this this one and this one. Mm-hmm.
0: There are numbers on these that are bigger than the others. <laughs> right. I guess that's like, good. yeah. As I recall, you won that game? Maybe. I don't. <laughs> Who's keeping track,
3: right? <laughs> I remember those tiles. Apparently they're good. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: whatever, whatever I took, I, it worked out all
1: right. Well, no, I think what it was is halfway through the game, I remembered oh, yeah, there's a lot of points in the religion track.
0: Yeah, the crystal skulls. <laughs> there yeah. There
1: are three gods that all have a track that you can put yourself higher on. There's just a dumb amount of points there in the end of the game.
0: Yeah, worker placement games with themes are good. For instance... (laughs) Yes,
3: if D&D is more your interest, we can move on to Lords of Waterdeep, which also came out in 2012, released by WotC, created by Peter Lee and Rodney Thompson. I always think of this one as kind of like baby's first (laughs) worker placement game, because it basically has all the mechanics we've been talking about. There's Maybe a little bit more variety I'll talk about in a second. But when I'm teaching people worker placement, this is the game I go to. And that's not a knock on the game. I actually really enjoy this game.
0: It's a great
2: game.
3: It's a very simple game. It's fun to play. Of course, I love the theme. I'm a huge D&D fan. You're working for different Lords of Waterdeep. All that really means is you get a secret card at the beginning of the game that will tell you some additional scoring benefits you get for completing different types of
1: quests. Are you working for them? I you th- always Lord thought you Lords. were that person. Uh, no, I think you're working for them. Uh, yeah. Weird. Is this one of them yeah. a
2: beholder at least? Yeah. yeah. At least yeah. At least okay.
1: I- but that's an expansion which which we will need to talk about that expansion because it is a modular and b Really good.
3: Agreed. It doesn't actually specify that you are the lord. It just says that there are lords and these give you victory points. Huh. That's weird. Weird. I always assumed you were working for them just because, like, these are famous Forgotten Realms characters. But anyhow, you have agents, which are just your workers. You place them on different spots on the board. Nothing terribly surprising or new there. Your resources are kind of funny. They're clerics, fighters, rogues, and wizards Mm -hmm. represented by colored cubes. And you have a series of quest cards that you need five fighters and two clerics to go kill some undead in whatever thematically appropriate Forgotten Realms thing there is. Where it gets kind of interesting, where it gets a little different, uh, there are quest cards that are called plot cards that you can play on your opponent's that they have to complete before they can complete any of their other quests. So it's a good way of stopping someone cold.
0: Yeah, I know you're working really hard on cleaning out those undead, but there are some smugglers down by the docks that the council requires you to take care of first.
3: Oh, man, nothing's more satisfying than watching someone like build up one like two colors of a resource and then giving them a plot card. It's like, yeah, I know you've got like 25 fighters right now. Go find some clerics and wizards. Have yeah, fun with exactly.
1: that. <laughs> or even worse, I know you've got 25 fighters. What if you spent like a good half of them doing oh, this Yeah, Yeah, that,
3: that is good, too. The- it's
1: worth a tenth of the oh, yes, points yes. of and what it is worth, like, trying, trying to point. Do. Yeah, they're
3: worth almost nothing. One of the other different things is you can build buildings, which give you other additional places that people can go they place their worker on that position you get resources you get a benefit for them doing that i don't know if this is the first time that's done in these kind of games we haven't talked about any that do it before
1: this
2: claiming I buildings for income is that i mean in
0: agricola you don't claim it, the building you
1: no, yeah not. like when you build a building in Waterdeep, you are its owner mm-hmm. but everyone has access to it when somebody that is not you takes that action you get a a cookie basically. an opportunity cost for doing it yeah. which is I think well, Lahav you, get a, you has get a that. Yeah, yeah. Are drastically varied in their powers because, like, some of them are you get a coin. Mm. Some of them are just you get straight up victory points.
4: Yeah, something. I really dig the building mechanism because it flows very well in the story of the game, but also it does a really good job of expanding the initial set of actions to a big additional set of actions in a very narrative friendly and also like very smooth almost.
0: Yeah, also because you get an additional worker like halfway through the game yeah. and that just is at the point where there are enough more things to do that it makes it It's just really well put together. I mean, I-, I love the theme. I remember one of the quest cards is train owl bears (laughs) so it's like you get you get some fighters and a couple wizards and you go off and train some owl bears and then as part of the reward for that quest you get some more fighters who are the owl bears and i just (laughs) i love the little things like that
1: and the graphic design on the game goes a long way to delivering that theme the board is basically a map of Waterdeep done in a very traditional map style with all the little buildings plotted out. Yeah, it turns out Watsi
0: has some good artists and graphic designers <laughs> on staff.
1: Wow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I think without that graphic design element, this game would not be nearly as immersive as it is. Because, mm-hmm. again, when you strip all of that away, it is like the most basic of basic worker placement games but i think this is an example of like hey when fundamentals are done well mm-hmm. turns out yeah, they can and, be good and
0: the theme is both strong and well presented
1: and i think my favorite thing about this game is it doesn't outstay its welcome correct like yeah, yeah it, mm-hmm. the, the number of game rounds. is like what eight rounds something like that yeah, yeah depending it, like, mm-hmm. you get in you have enough time to do some cool stuff and then it gets out this is not a game that i want to play all the time but the thought of playing it is not a exertion of stress. Like, the thought of sitting down and playing Agricola is just... <laughs> I have to be toxic. mentally prepared for this. <laughs> the thought of sitting down and playing
3: Waterdeep is like, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I'll throw 25 fighters into a meat grinder and get some points. It sounds great.
0: <laughs> There's actually also a really nice digital implementation, for yes. iOS. I've spent too much time on that.
1: <laughs> now, the expansion, like we mentioned earlier, which is like... The Skullport and skull the... Undermountain or something? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, Undermountain just takes what the game already has and says, well, what if we turned it up to 11? So it's like, what if I had more fighters? What if I had more clerics? What if I had more points? Basically, all that content is bigger numbers. Mm. The Skullport one is almost the exact opposite where it's like hey what if i went into debt to do some of this stuff
3: yeah it's an interesting mechanic because like you can go to spaces that will give you a little skull token but they give you great rewards the more skull tokens in play at the end of the game the more negative victory points they count towards you so There's a balancing mechanic where it's like, oh, I really need these resources, but this is going to really hurt me later on.
0: Surely I can find a way to get rid of these skulls later. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you can.
1: (laughs) And it's skulls in play among all characters. Yes. So it's like, if only one person is going skulls, like, they'll probably be fine. But then if somebody else gets involved, it's like, well, oh, okay, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Now you're making my skulls
4: worse. I didn't authorize you're getting involved in the skull game. Right i love that it's like you know if i get
3: one skull it's like minus five for me but he's got five skulls so that's mm-hmm. minus 20 points to him it's definitely
0: mm-hmm. worth it
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i really but like that at experience. the end of the game he's got quests that might put skulls back so it's mm-hmm. like well okay cool I now his two skulls <laughs> are only negative two and yours right. is negative two so yeah. it closes that difference a little bit which i think is a really great way to do player interaction in a worker placement. Yes,
3: mm-hmm. yeah, I, I really
0: like that. Unless I'm teaching it to a new person,
3: this is the way I always play it with that expansion.
0: Yeah, so I think Joe had mentioned Caverna. I don't know that I would start with Caverna as a non-gamer's worker placement game. I think Lords of Waterdeep, especially if you have somebody who's coming from a and d fantasy background, is a great introduction to this game type. Agreed
3: yeah me being me, I had to upgrade all the components, so like instead of little cubes, I have tiny little clerics and fighters <laughs> and it's very satisfying to just chuck them
1: <laughs> at the same time though, if you have somebody who is not interested in d and d, they probably won't play this game like I've tried introducing yeah, it yeah. to some family members, and it just, they bounced off.
0: i mean it it leans into the theme pretty heavily, yeah. which works if you're a d and d nerd or a fantasy nerd in general.
3: Yeah, it looks like you play as different factions, like the Harpers and the Red Sashes. That's
0: Yeah, that's technically who you are. You're right. And you're working for one of the Lords. Mm.
3: Now. Yep. Been a bit since I played this, but uh, the Harpers, the worst.
0: So, five I years think... go by.
1: Wow.
2: Yeah. Right. In a blink. <laughs> hey, hey Look, Frank. Water let's put it this way. The there were a lot of worker placement <laughs> games
0: in that
4: time period. We don't have time to talk about all of them. They're probably all fine. Hey, Frank. <laughs> yeah. Except for Above and Below or Near and Far, the bad one of those two. Uh, above and Below. Yeah. Above and Below. Except for Above and Below. Yeah, below. don't play that.
1: Hey, Frank, can you reset the counter? It's reset now been counter? zero episodes since we've talked about a legacy game. Wow. <laughs> okay, wait, okay, Because yeah. what if, what if there was a worker placement game that was also a legacy game?
2: Then we would play it.
1: We would and have done that thing. <laughs> and and that then game, we would regret it. That <laughs> game is called Charterstone, which came out in 2017. Jamie Stone Meyer Games. This is a really neat idea. In this game, you are basically playing a worker placement game as you go through the games you unlock new spaces new powers new rules you're building a town right you're building a town so like the stickers you're putting out are new buildings in your town that introduce new spaces for people to put their workers and then those new spaces also introduce new character cards and mechanics that have new powers
2: and a branching story Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and we weren't able to finish that story (laughs) Because competitive legacy games are really tough because of a I think Charterstone, our big problem with that is that all of the packs introduce new mechanics and then give a bonus to the person who opened that pack. And so it really became a first come, first serve rush to get the new hotness. And it never quite worked out. We played it six players. We, we did. had a full boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Really- Early on, one of the players chose that, that, not to open their that, pack. That was yeah.
0: me. So basically, I think the game is probably pretty well balanced and well put together if everybody plays optimally. But this was like our first game. And each color has like a, an area of specialization. They do certain types of buildings. And I had one that I could have unlocked. And I was like, well, I want to do this other thing first. And then one of the other players basically built my next building and... We didn't finish the entire campaign. We played several games beyond that, and it really felt like I am now so far behind in the curve that I have no way to recover.
2: If you play in your color, you get a set of compatible, you know, engine going in your color. Yeah, but it's like you miss one turn. Yeah. We played it with three. We didn't have that problem, and we ended up being kind of a mix of two or three colors a piece and crossing. And because of the random way the other players happen, they'll basically build their stuff randomly. So it was a little more interesting because we had those other colors coming in randomly and so we are having to pick up the other colors in ours mm-hmm. to make up for the difference. So we had a lot more variability in our regions. And so I actually think it'd probably play a lot better
4: at three or four. Yeah, yeah we played it at five and it was six or whatever. Yeah, we yeah. played with the full boat and it was yeah. crowded. It was too sure. much.
0: It was also, it, it has the usual problem with that and that it takes a long time to get back to your turn. And I'm disappointed from a design standpoint that it's possible for one mistake like that to really sort of send things off. Yeah. I, I think it's still conceptually a good game. The they do a lot of neat ideas. The board is two-sided, so you can play it again with just a reset kit. And, and they do a lot of neat things. And the storyline was interesting. I remember at one point early on, I yeah. performed so poorly in a certain game that the emperor of all mankind just straight up murdered me. No. <laughs> and I have spent a couple games as a ghost. <laughs>
2: But yeah, we would play again and we were playing at 30, 45 minutes a game with three mm-hmm. people. And so the game goes really fast. Yeah, your that, turns come around. You know, we were just whipping through
1: the games. That definitely that sounds funny. better. That was and, not true for a six-player game.
2: Yeah. And that would just suck.
1: <laughs> I did like that the legacy score component was actually done on the side of a deck box yeah. that you would keep all your stuff in. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. Yep, agreed. What's this the first first legacy game that came with a dedicated reset pack I don't mm. think it
0: came with the reset pack. It or why, a but like they board. produced a, a um, reset
1: pack. And I think-
0: Maybe, because I know Gloomhaven had like the reusable stickers and things like that. I don't know if there was something that was defined as a reset pack before mm-hmm. this. Yeah, nothing- I really- mean, there were a lot of really innovative things in the game. And I think at It's heart, it's a good game. We just had a bad experience. Yeah, huh. yeah.
1: Because like, again, based on what Frank said, I think it'd be really cool if it were three players, but six- maybe Players four? worth of stuff, mm-hmm. and then you could mix and match. Yeah,
0: because you still need to have all the players in there because the different
4: resources and stuff.
1: But like when we played, it definitely felt like Brian has one power. This other player has three, and everybody else has two.
4: I was a player that had three. <laughs> Sorry, Brian. Monster I your thing. I was going to win the hell out of that game. And by the way. You did, if I recall. <laughs> yeah. We didn't actually <laughs> well, finish it, but you, like you, you did as far as we played. I was well, well on my way to complete victory. I had like a million humans. It was nonsense. The acceleration I got by stealing Brian's thing, which was not intentional, but also intentional,
3: (laughs) was pretty noticeable. That's an interesting question then, right? For competitive legacy games, how do you address like a runaway leader problem?
4: Fuck competitive legacy.
0: I mean, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. That's um, true. That's yep. true. Yeah. There wrong. is an exception You're to that wrong. rule that
4: we will talk You're about not wrong. A that's like, in a few minutes. That's brilliant. In general, I don't like competitive legacy games. And the reason I generally don't like competitive legacy games is that it's a really a test of who groks a new mechanic is broken the fastest. Right. And like that's a shitty experience like in seagull? general.
0: <laughs> yeah, because it was the kind of thing that is like, this was, I think, literally our first game. Mm-hmm. And it's like... I learned the lesson that you can't (laughs) afford to wait on these things, but it's not like a regular game, well, the next time we play, I'll do better, Mm. because I'm now committed to a 15-game run where I'm downhill from everybody.
4: So I think what happened is, if I remember correctly, what happens is when you start the game, or sometimes during the game, you open a thing, you get your cards in hand, and then Brian chose not to, in the first game open it I so we moved move the first into time the I second could. game yeah, but in the second game all the cards got shuffled in mm-hmm. and so now it was random whether you even got an option to do yeah, it, or it was not. something
2: and it was and it went into the public pool so anyone
4: yes. could do it. Exactly, exactly. And that's when Joe NBA, and that's yeah. when I did it and unmade made me sad. upset the balance. Yeah.
2: And again with the three other players randomly playing and pulling cards off the deck and building them. The balance was just completely upset for sure. everyone. <laughs> right yeah. And so, so that made it oddly enough more
0: interesting. Yeah. Right exactly so so don't let let my horrible mistake turn you off this game. If you have a smaller group,
4: it's conceptually pretty cool and they do some neat stuff. in it, Yeah, for sure. I was definitely enjoying the story for sure. Yep. Yeah.
2: And if you like story and themed, although my rant about uh, worker placement games are evil, I actually got a 2017 game that no one else has played called Outlive. This is designed by Gregory Oliver and published by Le Boîte de Joux, obviously a French company out uh, the box of games. This is Fallout: The Worker Placement Game, a little before you know Fallout Shelter came out. So if you look at this game, you want the deluxe edition. The deluxe edition comes with these incredibly elaborate workers, which are gang squads of post-apocalyptic dudes roaming around a simple little board with about six or seven spaces, and then you've got your own elaborate two-layer Fallout Shelter where you're building all your techs and a whole bunch of little plastic. Stand-up colonists that you're happily building and placing, a little like Puerto Rico colonists, building into your shelter to power all your tech with, you know, spaces and two-layer tiles that represent if you've got that powered up. So tech tree, yay, a solitaire tech tree. And then what happens on the top board Mostly you're getting resources. That's pretty much it. Sometimes you get new tech that you find randomly. But the way this one works, you have your tokens are rated three, four, four, five. Maybe there's a two, but different numbers, depending on how many guys are on the incredibly cool plastic bases. Basically, your guys always stay on the board. When it's your turn, you turn one of yours up to where they're standing up and move them one or two spaces in either direction. It's a big circle board and you can go clockwise or counterclockwise. And then you grab your stuff. At the start of the round, stuff pours out from the heavens (laughs) to be available to be found. Mm -hmm. So the big problem is if somebody moves in a bigger group than you've moved in, they can pick up the dregs of whatever's left after the other people have picked it over. And they get to take a thing from everyone else who's less... Oh, no. just one so it's Mm -hmm. a little bit of damage but you're really having to watch both okay there's still stuff there so i want to send a group what's big enough not to be threatened and get stuff stolen from me (laughs) surprisingly simple game but the fallout theme there are events that come up that if you're the first who commits enough stuff to it you'll get victory points you had to have to deal with radiation that'll pour into your shelter's and construct enough stuff in your shelter to avoid the radiation. Food and water problem, as well as meat and canned food. Make rooms. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the foods are essentially the same, but there's some particular tech items that you need very specific things and have to go to specific places. But that's it. It's a surprisingly simple, straightforward game. Incredibly overproduced. I mean, lovely yeah. theme. Kickstarter game. Fallout. <laughs> And all of these things did it for me. But also the kind of competition thing about your workers that feels right. It's not overly uh, mean. Take that, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, there is, you know, it's just one thing and you probably got a whole bunch of stuff
0: anyway. It looks thematic enough that I would give it a try.
1: I mean, it sounds a lot like the what was it, Silverton, where we talked about the blind bidding? No, that was- That was Aladdin's Dragons. Aladdin's Dragons. This isn't blind, though. Right. You turn it up and choose uh, That's exactly it. It's like, what if Aladdin's Dragons was public bidding, but also- And everyone had guns. Everyone still (laughs) got the thing, but whoever had the most got bonus thing.
2: Yeah, totally. Except that you don't get the thing because the stuff that's on that space, there's enough water at the dam. And once those water jugs run out, yeah, they're running out. It's also the only game I know that has little tiny barbecue rib tokens <laughs> plastic, um, which are adorable. And meat's important, as we all know.
0: Sure. We, and Joe especially, were complaining recently about how competitive legacy games are bad, okay? Generally uh, and they are. For the most part, that is true. But there is a brilliant exception that we played through a while back, we've talked about it here before, which is Rise of Queensdale. Came out in 2018 from Inca and Marcus Brand again, the folks behind Village, published by Alia and Ravensburger. The setup is kind of similar to Charterstone conceptually that you've been sent out to prepare this kingdom for the rulers and that sort of thing. For the dying queen, yeah. (laughs) Well, sure, yeah, exactly. The queen's dying. We want you to make a lands that will make her feel happier. And it starts very simple. You know, you've got a couple simple resources and things and you can move things around and flip over tiles and find earth. And as the game goes on, or as the series of games goes on, it adds in many different ways to use your workers, to create things. And I do not know how they did it, but this game is so balanced, it's frankly a little terrifying. You play a game, and we play with all four players, somebody wins the game, and they're, you know, sort of one step closer to being the king's favorite at the end or whatever. But that also means once you win a game, you need more victory points to win the next game. And everybody else still needs the same amount from the first. And so there are certainly benefits from winning a game, but it is tempered really nicely. There was a point in our campaign when somebody was like three games ahead, I think. Yeah, and we, think were, we
4: were at least two games
0: yeah, ahead. Yeah, and we were like really worried, okay, is Joe gonna run away with it? And then the way the balancing mechanisms in the game work, I think we were all within a game at the end.
4: Wow. I was like a two or three games ahead, but then the my source of points ended in essence, because almost all the sources of points are temporary. Like yeah, there are they're limited via like game mechanisms.
0: Yeah, it's like there's a, a a point in the game where you're building a lot of statues and there's this new marble resource to get in. And then Mike built a ton of statues and got a million points for them. And then after a few games, like okay, statues aren't important anymore. So now we had all this stuff built towards a marble economy, which was no longer really as important.
1: It was less so that they were important, but like the amount of points they generated weren't going to be enough to carry you
0: to victory. That's right. Cause the, the point thing scale. Cause like, once you've won a couple games, you get more points for building a building, but you need more points to win.
2: It- but all of those things like statues are fixed points. I mm-hmm. Think. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you're way ahead and pour yourself into the new stuff, awesome. But then you'll have an economy toward building the new stuff and be ahead. And,
0: and now there are only five and points and you. the new
4: stuff is worth 10. You know, Yeah. You're building dice in this game, too, which I Mm -hmm. super dig. I really like that mechanic of stickering dice. And, like, at the end of the game, everybody gets some victory points that they can use to, like, sticker dice, the winner actually doesn't get to Sticker Dice. Correct, it's low the lower. The nice. lower people get that's points nice. to Sticker Dice to kind of make their dice better over the course of the game.
1: Joe says Sticker Dice because we played the digital implementation. The physical game came with Ye Royal Plunger.
4: Yes. Really <laughs> yeah. yes. The, yeah. no, no, the dice are stickers in the game. The, the board is... Was, that's why uh, right. no, 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 no. you use the plunger that's to pick right. up the hexes. No, no,
0: that's <laughs> <right>. Yeah, <laughs> so when you build
2: a building, yeah, there, there are these nice. little strip punch things where you pop the building out of and you take the Royal Plunger to pick up the there's a digital implantation?
0: Yeah. Uh, not uh, a Tabletop simulator. There's a tabletop Definitely simulator. Not okay. It's not official, <laughs> but it's really well done. Okay, got really well it. Done. okay. Um, But yeah, it's neat. The branching story. I mean, there's not big branches. It's basically, you know, if you decide to be more military or not. If you're military, you get points for building walls. And if you're not, you get points for building parks. So it changes a little bit of the mechanics of the game. I just think it's, brilliantly well executed and and like i say supremely well balanced there's
2: events that'll come in and just like suddenly take over a turn and add Mm -hmm. flavor to it
1: yeah there is a whole side plot about a witch that i don't think we ever saw to its conclusion (laughs) either
2: but also you keep your entire board So when you build a building or hex, that's permanent. It's there. That's staying for the campaign. Mm -hmm. Again, like Charterstone.
1: The interesting thing about those is like when you build a building on a space, that space no longer gets one of the herb tokens on it, right? Right. So it's like you're destroying that early game engine. So again, going back to that progression of points, it's like Mm -hmm. anybody who has points invested in herbs is going to suffer as the city gets built out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's just really neatly put together and well done. Uh, Highly recommended. I don't know how easy it is to find anymore because, you know, like most legacy games, it's you play through the campaign once and then everything is covered with stickers.
4: uh, It's like a hundred bucks on Amazon right now. Oh, okay.
0: Honestly, it's a big box full of stuff. A hundred bucks is high, but it's not ludicrous. Oh my God. It was cheap when it first came
2: out. I think I paid like 35. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in that
0: box. (laughs) The other thing I like is that occasionally there are stickers you can get, which is like, you've got stickers that are icons here. You get gold, you get wood, you get points, whatever. And then there's a sticker that's like a picture of a bugle. It's like, what does it do? It's like, well, turn turn to this paragraph when you roll it.
4: (laughs) Um, sure. I'll try that. Let's see what happens. Bugles are great. Totally. Yeah. So the last game we want to talk about is Dune Imperium, released in 2020, designed by Paul Denon, and released by Direwolf Publishing. In Dune Imperium, you are playing one of the great houses, and you're duking it out on the the plane. That's funny, because some some of them are actually dukes. Dukes. Yeah, they are, they are. See what you did there. We played this once, in essence, right? Because, you know, we haven't seen each other in human space a lot. But I kind of, I dug where it was going, right? It's a combination of worker placement and deck builder, right? So you are, over the course of the game, buying cards and adding them to your deck. And you also have a certain number of kind of servants who can go out and do specific actions. There's a static set of actions on the board what changes is the cards that are available for purchase, and what is the reward this round for conflict. And so the kind of the central mechanic of the game, in a lot of ways, is there's this central location where you can deploy troops through various actions, and then the relative strengths of the troops will determine what place you are, and then you get a certain reward for being a specific place. And, you know, there's potentially a lot of victory points there or a lot of interesting extra rewards it seems like having played it once there are a number kind of paths to victory right you can instead focus on making a lot of friends at some of the guilds right there's a bunch of points there i think it's the first person to seven points 10 points the game ends right when someone reaches 10 points the points are kind of like constantly tracked up and down right there are things you can do to get points things you can do to lose points if someone overtakes you on one of the faction tracks or something. You can potentially lose a point there instead of keeping a point. Because whoever is the faction's favorite gets a point. Really two points. One point for crossing a line, which is permanent. The second point for being the top, Mm -hmm. right? So there's lots of different ways to get points, and I think it all felt like, given the one playthrough we did, that it all worked together really smoothly and looked like it's a really compelling game. So I'm looking forward to playing more of it.
0: Yeah, the theme is strong. You could definitely get a feel for the different houses and the different spaces kind of made sense in the context of the Dune universe. It's not overpoweringly themed, but it all makes sense within the context of the story and... uh yeah, it's well produced. I was not feeling that confident about this one cuz it was from a designer and a company that I really hadn't heard of before, but it's a really solid game <laughs> from everything I've seen and heard mm-hmm. on the one playthrough. So, yeah. would definitely play
1: again. And so what we will about worker placement games? They've got their fans, but I think Dune does a really good job of exemplifying why someone might really love a worker placement is that with almost all of these games you get out of it what you put into it. So a lot of these games have like such deep strategies and combos that you could do that the more you play it, the better it becomes. Mm -hmm. Now, not all worker placement games do that. But when we finished that game of Dune, I was going back and saying, well, what if I did this?
0: I will say there's definitely, as with any game really, worker placement or others, is that the more you play it, the better you get. I will say that Worker placement games are probably more susceptible than most to, if you've played the game a lot and you're playing it with other people who have played the game a lot, it's going to be at a very high level. I'm sure if we got together and had a game of, you know, Caverna or Lords of Waterdeep or whatever, we'd all have a good time. But if we went to Oasis of Fun or something and we're playing with people who are playing it once or twice a week electronically or whatever, we would all get our asses kicked and not have fun (laughs) because we don't know the game well enough.
2: But actually, the other thing back to my original worker placement. (laughs) Dude, Imperium's not just a worker placement game. Mm -hmm. Combine, you know, it's probably more of a deck building game that uses the worker placement mechanic and really the core of the games around that. When you have a, a, oh, this is a worker placement game, full stop, then. Yeah, whatever we've seen. It. I agree. Really, you know, <laughs> and I think take. honestly
0: yeah. that that's true of most of the game mechanics that we've talked about. I mean, okay. you know, when we started with a deck building game, you know, we we start with Dominion, which is a perfectly fine game, but anymore it's not very exciting because we live in an age where there's occasionally new mechanics coming out, but it's mostly different ways to sort of hybridize you know, the ones that have come before. And I think there's some really good ones out there. I think this is the first time in a while that we've talked about just a, a straight mechanic going through like this. So let's figure out what people's favorites are.
1: So kind of looking at the list that we've talked about today, I, mm. think, I think my favorite has got to be Last Will. Again, just because of that theme and the game is just fun to play. Because of its absurdity that it leans into. And again, you know, those early 2010s games, Last Will, Zulkin, and Waterdeep, like, all of those, I think, hit a sweet spot for me here. Anything before that feels just a little bit too dry. Anything after that feels innovative in a good way, but, like, it's the other side of that spectrum. Mm -hmm. I think those ones in the middle, like, I could sit down and play any of those three games at any time, and I'd be totally fine with it. Cool. How about you, Jason?
3: I mean, honestly, I think conquering native peoples apparently just appeals to me because Empire's (laughs) Age of Discovery, honestly, it really comes down to there's a lot of variety to the game. There's a lot of different paths to victory, as Joe mentioned before with some other games. I like the decisions that you get to make and that the ordering of your placement of your workers matters so much because it can make a huge difference in what you're able to do. If I had to go with the close second, it's going to be Alien Frontiers. It's just a, I really like the theme. It's a really easy thing to teach to people. There's a lot of fun decisions to be made there. But Jason, it's got dice. I know, well, (laughs) (laughs) i said it's got the it's got the dump spot where you're just like okay these dice are garbage just here go make my colony get built (laughs) and you know if you roll sixes you can crash a crash your (laughs) your ship into the planet and make into a colony
4: who doesn't like that it's like here's your new home right (laughs) yeah exactly For me, I think Last Will is my favorite on this list. It's so idiosyncratic and the way it approaches the worker placement I think is extremely fun and the game in general is really clever. I'm really excited to get Dune Imperium out to the table again and play a full game of it with people in person and kind of get everybody's opinions on it again. But that's kind of where I'm at right now.
2: Yeah, and probably I'm at Kingsburg and Outlive. And again, I think the difference is that tech tree addiction yeah i mean put i want to play beyond the sunset <laughs> just right, a tech family. tree with minimal game around it, it tech tree, like, the game sounds like heaven <laughs> i'm in that's fair you son of a bitch i'm in <laughs> hey there's a great version on board game arena mm-hmm. yeah, i'm in
0: go on okay we'll have to talk all right <laughs> and for me i think in terms of the enjoyment i got out of it i would probably say rise of queensdale but i've played that it's not enough of a story that I could play it again, but it's a big commitment. So I think as far as one that I would be playing on a semi regular basis, honestly, I really want to play more Teotihuacan, but we didn't talk about that one, so so of the ones that we've talked about here, I would probably I would probably do Tolkien. I'm just a sucker for gimmicks, and that is a good one.
2: Although I know the game, I would be so tempted to go back to Rise of Queensdale. Such it is yeah. really
0: good. Yeah. yeah. I agree. <laughs> And again,
1: that goes back to the immediately after finishing a game. It was like, oh, man, what if I had done this, Mm -hmm. which is especially frustrating for a legacy game because you literally cannot go back
0: and do it again.
1: I don't know. I think if they ever decide to reprint that, that would be the time I'm like, yeah, I could do. I could do. Oh, yeah,
0: totally. I think I I still have a physical copy because Frank, I think, had told us gorgeous things about it. And I'm like, oh, we should play that. And then there was a lockdown. And then we discovered that there was an online.
1: I'm sorry. Physical media. Gross. That happens.
2: It's, I'm starting to discover, it's wonderful. Oh my god, we can play, like, games with pieces? It's a
0: whole you want me to put world. my hands on things that I'm, aren't a keyboard? I'm going to pass you a piece of plastic that Ew, you're going to touch with you your hands. did <laughs> you first? It's wrong you, Brian. Seriously, dude. <laughs> Gross. Well, that was our list. I'm sure there are some worker placement games out there that we didn't touch on that you, our listeners, think might be your favorite. So tell us what they are. Functionally um, an
4: infinite number, ultimately. I mean, ultimately. pretty much. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, exactly. We've got a Facebook page where you have a lot of discussions. You can put comments on the website, Ascent We would always love to get reviews on iTunes because that really helps us get our nonsense out to more people. But in the meantime... If you are in a health and vaccination state where you can go out and play games with other people again, go do that. If not, be careful, take care of yourselves, and stick around so we can talk with you again next month. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening.
4: Brian, cut all this.
0: No, I'm just going to make our listeners wait.